Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A popular discussion point on this show is the many brilliant, underrated ska bands from the 90s that created an original version of the music that was in direct contrast to the goofy ska stereotypes portrayed in mainstream culture. So today we talk about Austin, Texas band The Impossibles, a brilliant four-piece group influenced by Weezer as much as they were by Operation Ivy. Our guest is Impossibles guitarist and singer Rory Phillips. We also talk about his post-Impossibles power pop band The Stereo, led by Animal Chin's Jamie Wolford. The Stereo has an interesting and bizarre story, so much that Rory recently created a five-part podcast series on it called Kings of No Hope. You can listen to it wherever you normally download podcasts. Of all the bands that are the kind of forgotten 90s ska punk bands, like I'd say Impossibles is probably at the top of my list of bands that get overlooked from that era that are incredible. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, they're definitely a band I like to bring up as a good example of what ska in the 90s sounded like that's different than how people perceive it. Totally. They're also a good example of a band that put out another record and got rid of all their ska. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope I hope that we were able to help Rory work through some of that ska shame. Yeah. Definitely. I hope that Gabe hears this too. And I hope that Gabe realizes how valid and powerful uh, the impossible ska punk music was. Okay. I want to start by jogging your memory a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, My band flat planet played with the impossibles once. Oh Uh, yeah. You don't, you don't have to jog that memory. Okay. You know, you know, this. I came to play. I came to play (laughs) with my flat, my flat planet recollections. Yeah. We played at eco action warehouse, right? In Austin, Texas. Yeah, somebody sent me the flyer, so I even have the exact date. is uh, August 17th. Oh, my God. And uh, it's, here's some band names on that bill, too. Latchkey Kids. Yep. Contradicts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, here's the... I'll, before I say the last one, I'll tell you my, my story of how I remember this name and then what it actually is. So, you know, years after Flat Planet's no longer a band anymore... I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, did we play with Spoon back in back in the day? <laughs> and I was like, I asked my other band members, they're like, yeah. I was like, how weird is that, that we played with Spoon? And then like this year or late last year, somebody sent me the flyer. And you know what the band name was? I don't. Fork. <laughs> <laughs> 
close. Yeah. Arch enemies of Spoon. Yeah. What a, what a weird <laughs> trick my brain did. <laughs> Cause That's amazing. Our Spoon are from that area too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Spooner from Austin. I saw them play to like eight people at a place called Blue Flamingo uh, many times. And so in, in 1995, they would have been a small band? Oh, yeah. Okay. They, w- they would have still been a three-piece playing to nobody. Yeah. So it, it's totally plausible that they could have been on that show. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that was the rest of Spoon. Maybe they like split off into a yeah. rival band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And the, uh, the, my favorite part, too, is that you guys are listed as those darn impossibles. <laughs> nice. Was that a thing or was that just somebody no, being creative? I think that was someone being creative. And the band Contradicts, so it's D-I-C-K-S, that is uh, Gabe, the singer for the Impossibles, other band. Like, oh, uh, He was in two bands at that point. And uh, the Contradicts was uh, Three Skinheads and Gabe on, uh, on bass. Uh, <laughs> fun, fun times. What was that venue? I vaguely remember it's like an outdoor space, but it was like yeah. a recycling plant. What was it? Yes. Yeah. Eco action is still a thing in Austin, to my knowledge. Uh, yeah. It's basically like they collect recycling. And so someone who worked there, there was just a big storage facility in the industrial part of town. Uh, and a person who worked there was one of the you know, guys playing in bands that we played with. And so they had started holding shows there you know someone drug a pa out there and uh we had some some pretty amazing shows you know for what it was i guess it was us trying to be gilman street like (laughs) in austin uh good stuff though yeah it was it was a great show i remember it being one of the better shows on that particular tour yeah just in terms of it being like there was people there they were a receptive crowd down with it you know yeah, I was reading your book. So that was during the time when you were y'all were stationed in San Antonio and yeah. like playing places in in Texas. I was I was like waiting for Eco Action to make an appearance, but you know maybe maybe in the sequel you can deep dive. Maybe yeah. <laughs> Some of this stuff came out after I wrote it. Like I after I wrote it, I thought about that show. And yeah, playing with Spoon and then talking about it on Twitter and then somebody sending me the flyer. So. Yeah, I, I don't think when I was writing it that that memory had come up yet. We're going to drag it all out. <laughs> <We're> gonna... <laughs> That's why we have a podcast now. Yeah. What, what are some other um, What are some other shows at Eco Action that you remember? Like either having played with bands or just having seen shows there. I mean, it was it was mostly local stuff. Uh, Dynamite Boy is is a band that you know played there quite a bit. Um, we played there a few times. Uh, local bands like uh, Spill. Yeah, just like, you know, a laundry list of names that no one would recognize, <laughs> but uh, was like our scene at the time. Uh, we did quite a, a, a bit of stuff there. It was kind of like the the lead up to us playing real clubs in Austin because the all ages venues were really limited at that point. And until you got big enough to play Liberty Lunch, which we did eventually, but until we got to that point, Eco Action was like, you know, perfect for, for having a five band bill of you know, musical genres that have absolutely nothing to do with each other, just spilling all over the place. It was, uh, it was great. What was Liberty Lunch? Oh God. Liberty Lunch is, uh, uh, a, is a venue in Austin. Um, it's, it's since been replaced by some of the beautiful condos that you can see on <laughs> the, uh, the lakefront property, uh, in Austin. But, um, 
I mean, it, it was just a legendary venue. Uh, my, like, when I think about Liberty Lunch, the main tragic memory that sticks out for me is that I saw Mud Honey there, uh, and that Mud Honey show was great. It was fantastic. But then the next week, there was another band from Seattle playing that I really wanted to see. And my dad was like, no, you just went to a show. You can't go to another one. And that band was Nirvana. Oh. So thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but Liberty Lunch was amazing. It was, it was, you know, a... 1200 capacity, all ages venue, uh, amazing sound system. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I miss it a lot to this day. So at that show, um, at eco action, I remember you guys wearing seven 11, like outfits, like you, mm. like you'd all gotten off work at seven 11 is what you guys look like. <laughs> I worked at seven 11. I was the only one, <laughs> uh, and I don't remember that, but that, I mean, it tracks. Uh, my boss at 7-Eleven was really cool. He actually donated the uh, uniforms that they used in the Richard Linkletter movie um, that had the Anarchy Mart that I am failing to recall right now. But he, he had, you know, given them 7-Eleven uniforms that they just took the the corporate logo off of and they, they used in that movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I think I might have pocketed some as well for that show we were we were trying to find our footing in the beginning you know because i wanted to do something different but i wasn't really sure what and then we eventually landed on the jerseys idea which you know stuck and uh was was you know ended up being becoming the the theme that we could live with was there anything else besides the the jerseys and the 7-eleven uniforms that you guys tried uh i not not anything i mean we we would try things like uh primary color t-shirts that's something that we tried post jerseys as well because you know after a while it was like okay you know we're gonna try and keep doing this band and and maybe we should try and freshen things up so we we wore primary color t-shirts for one tour and at the time we didn't know what this meant but we were touring with an australian band called blue line medic and one of their guitar players could not stop just cracking up because he said that we looked like the Wiggles and the Wiggles <laughs> had not really landed stateside. So we didn't, you know, think anything of it, but we did. We 100% looked like the Wiggles. At the time, uh, how early was that show? So you guys had been a band probably what, a year, maybe less than Oh, not even. Oh yeah. Way less. Like that was maybe three to six months into us being a band. Yeah. Cause I had never heard of you when we played that show, I don't even remember how we landed, what, who I had talked to to book the show, but I, I wasn't told like, you're going to be playing with the impossibles or anything like that. It was just, you know, you guys were there and we, we loved you guys. We thought you guys were amazing. We didn't often play with other ska bands or ska, you know, adjacent or whatever, anything Mm. in the ska realm. We rarely got put on those uh, on tour. And so Mm. we were particularly excited that we got to play with a ska band and that one that was really interesting and good. I'm glad you say that. Because after reading your book, now I feel like really insecure about my ska bona fides. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like serious, like, I'm, you know, a little, little bit scared. I thought maybe I'd be brought in as the, the heel on this podcast. No, no, we love the impossible here. <laughs> yeah. So you're an example of the kind of bands that we, we talk about. And that's that people have an idea about ska, very exaggerated idea about ska that it's, Goofy, lighthearted, you know, whatever. And I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not slamming that kind of ska because my band probably fell more into that than yours did. 
<laughs> but it's just such, such an exaggerated idea that people have about the genre. It's good to present them with, you know, other things that were happening at the same time that contradict right. that. Like you guys are a good example. Yeah. We, we had some of the like tug on the heartstrings stuff and, you know, some other influences that, that brought in the, the sort of more emo elements, I guess, mm -hmm. at, at the time. Um, I, I listened to Jason Trend's uh, interview where he talked about that, <laughs> about how we were like a bridge uh, uh, out of ska uh, to emo, <laughs> uh, which which I love. Yeah, and, and really, you know, to touch on the ska part and like where that came from for us, I mean, back then you were really limited to like your access to records, you know, like which CDs you had or, or which albums you could hear that kind of defined how much music knowledge you had firsthand and i think for us it was that that was kind of symptomatic of why operation ivy was really the like singular scott influence for us it was like that was the record that that we had and then in kind of like looking at the the landscape at the time and and sort of trying to figure out like you know where where did we sit and and how might we have been different one of the things that i've noticed is that fishbone seems to be like a really seminal band for a lot of uh, artists that came up during that time. And we were completely ignorant to Fishbone. Like we didn't have that at all. So it's like Fishbone kind of comes up and there's this like skank and pickle. And, and, you know, I think flat planet had some of that too, of like the, yeah. the kind of like the ska carnival, just like, this is an experience. And there's, you know, so many people on stage making this thing happen. And we, we didn't have any sort of, you know, point of reference for that. So for us, it was just about Operation Ivy, you know, taking that and then kind of, kind of running with it and then mixing it with all the other sort of stuff that we listened to. And so, you know, in some ways I think that's like, there's, there's some good elements to that. And the fact that I don't think we really crossed over with anything that anyone else was trying to do. Um, but I do feel a little guilty in retrospect, having, being so ignorant of the history, like, you know, really not understanding where it had come from. Like the specials was the oldest ska band I had ever heard of at that point. And I barely <laughs> heard any of their stuff, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it's really interesting now, you know, just look back at it from like a 10,000 foot level that we were able to take that, take any of those influences at all and not just turn it into something like, super embarrassing as uh, as kind of ignorant as we were what what was happening in austin was there any other ska bands oh my god i'm so glad you asked gals panic <laughs> oh, gals yeah. panic yeah. uh yeah uh, uh seminal band uh for us uh changed my life 100 percent uh and you know me 330 i know y'all speak very highly of them and and i will too uh given the opportunity uh me 330 were were really tight with gals panic and you know they they played a bunch of shows together uh they're they were just crazy uh uh super catchy songs but really irreverent kind of had like some of that oingo boingo um you know kind of some funny lyrics but uh just undeniable and and amazing to dance to and you know while up ivy was like the record that changed it all for me. Gals Panic was 100% the live band that that changed it for me in that respect. The their guitarist uh Germ? Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, one time, so Dan, Dan Pothas lives, he's been living in Santa Cruz for a while. And uh, he, he threw a show at his apartment. And uh, he's like, he invited me. So I, I came down and D- Dan played like an acoustic set and Germ played an acoustic set. Mm-hmm. So I got to see Germ. I didn't, I didn't, ha- I didn't know who he was at the time. I la- later learned, you know, who he was and his roots. But yeah, so I saw yeah. him play a set and uh, he had a line in one song that is like r- stuck with me and resonated with me. And this is like got to be 10 or 15 years ago. It's like... um we're tight as stitches. We fight like bitches. <laughs> and I like love that line. <laughs> yeah. It's from a song, I guess he's saying. I don't know. It just stuck with me. Yeah. Germ was such a fantastic lyricist. Uh, it's so good at being funny and satirical and irreverent. I was super, super tight with Germ for a really long time. I, uh, I, when I was uh, reading In Defense of Ska, available now at all fine bookstores, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a, a piece in it about Misfits of Ska. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I was on a Misfits of Ska. Uh, and so I went through and I looked for it. I was looking for the impossibles and I couldn't find it. I was on Misfits of Ska 2 because yeah. I I was in Missile Command, which was Germ's post-Gal's Panic Oh, band. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the song Fuentes on Misfits of Ska 2, uh, that's me playing bass on that. Like after the impossibles broke up, I was just kind of floating around from band to band trying to keep things going uh and one of one of my pit stops was playing uh playing bass for germ so when you were um you know when you played that that show we talked about eco action you talked about there being kind of a scene that you were part of the diy scene yeah i assume gals panic was kind of bigger at that point so they were kind of the the band that had started before you guys and you kind of looked mm-hmm. up to so who were what kind of bands were your peers of that DIY scene in mid nineties? Yeah. In Austin, uh, dynamite boy was a big one. We played a lot of, uh, shows with them. Uh, a little bit later bands like, uh, cruiserweight would come on. That was after the impossibles had broken up the, the first time, uh, dynamite boy. We were super tight with, we did a seven inch, a split seven inch with them. And that was our first tour ever. And so we rented a van to do our tour. And, you know, when you rent a van, uh, at least at that point, what we found is that you, you couldn't really find a van rental contract that would let you, you know, take it to California like we wanted to. So we were like, okay, well, nothing, nothing's going to happen. So why don't we just, you know, rent this van and we'll, we'll, we'll go out there. We'll see how it goes. We, we went out to California, you know, we played a bunch of shows to basically nobody, but it was thrilling for us just to be, you know, out of our home city and, and playing music. And when we were in California, driving uh, uh, between Los Angeles and, and the Bay Area, a hood from a car, like five cars up, flies up into the air spins like a frisbee straight at us and lands into our windshield oh so you know we've rented this van not even told the rental company that we're taking it out of the state and then we just completely and totally demolished i mean we somebody could have died we were really lucky that nothing like that happened but uh it was pretty horrifying and yeah all of that was with uh, dynamite boy uh who were some of our you know they were kind of like our best friend band back then on our second tour, we totaled one of our vans in Texas. Uh, fortunately, it was not a rental, but yeah, somewhere between 
in that long drive between San Antonio and El Paso in the middle of the night, we, we took two minivans on tour because we had, we were a ska <laughs> band and that's what we had access to. Sure. Yeah. Middle of the night, somewhere in the nowhere, one of the vans hits a deer head on totals it. Who's, but was it Jeff's? Oh, uh, Jeff Guerin, our uh, alto sax player. It was his mom's. <laughs> <laughs> it was not even his. Yeah. He had to go uh, home and tell his mom, oh, I totaled your van. Uh, parents of people who start bands, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all of you. We were fortunately, we had one gig left. We were going to play Southern California, which I think we did. And then yeah. we managed to get that van all the way home. But yeah, it was, de- it was declared totaled. And yep. Yeah. If I remember right, you guys just covered the front of the van with a tarp. <laughs> And drove with it like that, yeah. like a tarp held on. With walk like it off. Cords. You just got to walk, yeah, walk it, it off. off. Was that um, the wind? Sh- the thing hitting the windshield. Was that the worst van accident you've had? Yes. I mean, that was the most horrifying. I, I had like you know trauma where anytime I saw anything floating in the air while I was driving for a good while after that, I would I would like have a freak out moment, you know, because I oh, thought yeah. like another uh, another hood was going to crash in. We hit a deer as well. Uh, so, you know, I think that's just part of it. It's like you spend enough time on the highways and you're gonna, you're gonna see some, see some stuff. Wow. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody. It's Barry from the what podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I read that the initial the initial band name was called Fat Girls. <laughs> that's not that's not strictly true. The Fat Girls okay. was a completely different band. So but it it was the the drummer, the bass player, and me. We were all in the Fat Girls, and then it was our bass player Craig. His brother was singing, and as sort of like a transition period uh, to to change singers and kind of change direction. Uh, that's that's what you know spurred making the Impossibles. And at the time, I was living in a, a one bedroom apartment in. Austin with a one of those TVs that has the clicker that you have to you know turn around the rotary dial and for some reason if we plugged the coaxial cable into the back of that TV we could get Cartoon Network and that was it we didn't have a cable you know we couldn't afford cable but we could get Cartoon Network and at two o'clock in the morning on Cartoon Network they would show The Impossibles this this cartoon. Uh, that I thought it was about a band that were secretly superheroes. And this was just lining up with all of my sort of like pop culture, you know, references and just really hit for me. And so I was like, oh, this is perfect. Nobody knows about this thing, The Impossibles. The next band I I, I do, I'm, we're going to call it The Impossibles. Smash cut to, you know, by the time we came out, there were like eight different Impossibles. There were Impossibles out there that that <laughs> wanted it so bad that they like changed it to like, T-H-E-E impossibles and like the X impossibles. Uh, It was just a a complete and total uh, disaster from that perspective. What did fat girls sound like? Uh, Ska. Uh, 
Yeah, um, very very similar. If you, if anybody's heard the Impossibles anthology, there's a song called Kamikaze on there, and uh, that's that was a fat girl song. So uh, it was just even much more showing our Operation Ivy on our sleeve, kind of faster, punkier ska stuff. What were some of the early songs, the early Impossible songs? You know, the ones you started writing in practice and stuff. Yeah, I mean, they, they all made it on that that first uh records like Widowmaker was was a pretty early one um and it it kind of just became about the ska verse heavy you know Weezer rock chorus thing for us and like you know bringing those together and I say Weezer because it's the the easiest you know kind of touch point for people but really what it was is this band fourth grade nothing uh in Austin uh, fourth grade, nothing were incredible. And they're, they have kind of a tragic story where they, they got signed up with this producer guy in, in California who made a record for them, but then never found a label to buy it and then wouldn't give it to them. And so it just kind of died on the vine and, and, you know, you can find it on the internet. If you look for fourth grade, nothing, uh, some of those recordings are out there, but they did this thing where they would hit the halftime, you know, they, they, it was the, they largely sounded like Green Day. They were they were pretty heavily influenced by them, but they would do these halftime breakdowns that would just make the VFW hall go nuts, you know. Uh, and that's that's what we took away was just like, oh wow, you know, if we do these like really big rock choruses and we do them halftime, especially, that's going to get the the energy up. And so, can we, you know? forge these two things together the 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 ska energy in the verses that that kind of makes you want to you know run around and then this heavy halftime rock thing in the choruses that just makes you want to you know body bang uh and so that was kind of that kind of became like the the roadmap the thing that we were aiming for uh as we started writing more more songs for it and and i think our most successful songs like the ones that i like the most uh had those elements to it uh you know songs like uh plan b is an example that was one that showed up on a lot of compilations uh that i think people might be more familiar with that mm-hmm. that you know kind of follows that trajectory so were you weezer fans then oh absolutely i mean a hundred percent uh and you know weezer were clearly pixies fans and we had that element too. And so it's kind of like, I don't think anybody trying to play rock music after 1995 can really say with a straight face that they weren't influenced by Weezer because it was just so ubiquitous and such a a huge part of it. Um, But yeah, when trying to like kind of shorthand, you know, what did the impossible sound like? It's, it's always for me, Operation Ivy verses with Weezer choruses. Uh, I think it's the easiest kind of shorthand for it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and especially in retrospect too, because in the '90s, Weezer were a mainstream band, and then their second record was kind of a people didn't care about it at the time, and then it's like you get to the late '90s, early 2000s, and then it's suddenly remembered differently, right? And then then it's like, oh yeah, yeah, there's a Weezer influence in that. Yeah, and Pinkerton was huge for us, and uh, I know. You know, Aaron, you talked about 
Pinkerton having an influence on Crab Rangoon and, and the Impossibles were on the Crab Rangoon tour. Uh, that was like, you were, we re- yeah, that's where we like really cut our teeth. Well, you know, there was no one Crab Rangoon tour because ME330 were out constantly, but yeah, uh, we, we did a, a good stretch of it with those guys. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was seismic for kind of everybody and maybe didn't make as much of a dent on like a pop rock level, but yeah, it was, was huge for musicians. Tell me a little bit about your early releases. Yeah, we did the seven inch split, uh, which was just kind of self-released and self-funded. Like I drew the artwork for the Dynamite Boy Impossible split seven inch. Uh, and we did that and it was, it, it didn't really, you know, set the world on fire. Uh, I don't, I don't actually know if we sold all, you know, 300 of them that were pressed or whatever, but, uh, we did that. And then we, you know, at the time making cassette tapes was a way, a a reachable way to be able to take your music and be able to get it out to people. So we had a, a few different cassette tapes and one of those eventually made its way to, to Fuel by Ramen and John Janik, uh, at that label, uh, and really that's, that was kind of like the, the big pivot point where we went from making our own music, trying desperately to get it out there to having a partner to get that music out. And so we, we had put out our self-titled CD ourselves or with some friends, um, you know, and like slapped a label logo on it, but there was no actual label, you know, behind that. What was your fake label name? Uh, Red Five. Red Five. What does that mean? Star Wars reference. It yeah. Very. <laughs> Red Five was uh, Luke Skywalker's call sign. I think there was later maybe a band called Red Five uh, yeah. for a while, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Red Five Records, uh, uh, my best friend in the world, Vincent Perini, and Ga- uh, Graham Williams, who is like a, a huge promoter in Austin, uh, his company did fun, fun, fun fest, uh, for all the years that it was kind of, uh, dominating out here. Um, but yeah, so, so we had self-released ish, uh, that first thing and then Fuel by ramen grabbed it and put it back out. And, uh, at the time the, the hippos, uh, record was the only other thing that they were putting out, but they had a weird, they had like a, a regional deal with the hippos record where they were putting it out on the East coast and stiff dog records was putting it out on the West coast. If you can imagine wow, how weird. getting, getting granular enough to like divide up the United States, uh, as, as like a licensing deal. Does that mean you, that, does that mean that was the second release they did? I, I contend that we were the first band on fuel by ramen. Like we signed to like a three record deal with fuel by ramen records and nobody else. Uh, I don't know if that would stand up to scrutiny or not. <laughs> Wait, a three record deal? There's there's not three records. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we still got one more in us. I still owe them a record. <laughs> Better send that over. Fuel by Ramen, call me. Let's do this. <laughs> okay, so at the time, Fuel by Ramen was uh, Vinny's label, but also John was working. They were working together. Uh, but I assume your perspective was it's Vinny's label, right? No. Uh, Hmm. not, not really. Well, so yes, uh, less than Jake's involvement was a hundred percent a part of it. And, uh, I definitely did, you know, talk to Vinny occasionally 
But as far as like day to day and actual interactions with Fuel by Ramen, it was it was really John uh, predominantly from from day one. I mean, Vinny was very busy at that time, too. Like they were gearing up to put out losing streak. Uh, You know, they were signed to Capital. It was a super crazy time for them. So, I mean, it's not he was definitely a big part of it. And I'm I have no doubt was a big part of getting us onto the label too. I mean, all of Liz and Jake were amazing supporters of the impossibles. Uh, you know, Roger, uh, was a, was a huge fan. I mean, everybody just, just was super great to us, uh, from that band, but, you know, feel by ramen being less than Jake's label, I think helped them open a lot of doors. And I, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to think of it that way, but, just given my experience of working with the label, uh, it was a lot more, it was a lot more me and John interacting on it. So when you made the decision to sign Fuel by Robin didn't have like this history yet. No. Were you just like, was there, were you just like, yeah, anyone that wants to release us, we're down with it. Or was there a (laughs) a decision process? Like, yeah, I think these guys could really help us for these reasons. There was an element of that to us, to it. I mean, because it's not like people were banging down our doors. You know, we didn't get into any sort of bidding war situation or anything like that. But really, our friend Chris Seymour in Houston, he was in a band called the Supermarket All-Stars. He, you know, kind of vouched for Fuel by Ramen and was like, you should really get involved with this label. And there's this Less Than Jake element to it. So when it came to like the initial talking through of it, it was more i was more kind of being told how cool of an opportunity it was than like understanding it to be a cool opportunity from like my side the only other label that had showed any interest was uh drive through records which hmm. like before drive through was even a thing really uh so here's some ska lore uh please on that on that same tour where with Don and my boy where our hood got smashed in we were in Los Angeles and we saw a flyer that was like, Hey, you want to be in a music video? And we we're like, Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, this is the total sort of like tourist, uh, thing, uh, that, that like speaks exactly to what we would love to get into while we're out here. And so we went to this club and it turned out to be a video for Goldfinger, uh, <laughs> that was directed by the, the folks who started uh, drive through records. Um, they had directed the here in my bedroom video as well. And this was going to be the big follow-up. It was, uh, for the song Mabel. I don't know yeah. if you remember that one. I know that song. Yeah. She's the bomb, right? <laughs> uh, and so, so we did, we did this video and it was, it was great. And, um, we wore our impossibles jerseys to the shoot and we're like, Oh, this will be so awesome. You know, we'll, we'll be in this music video, but you know, you'll see our, our band's shirts and, some some people had come over and been like, okay, you guys gotta you gotta you gotta turn your shirts inside out. You know, we we don't we don't have the license for this. You've gotta you gotta do that. Uh, and and uh, Stephanie from Drive Through came over and was like, no way, these are awesome. These shirts are great. You gotta leave them the way they are. And so so we didn't end up having to do that. We you know we're in the video shoot. There were these shots where the guys from Goldfinger is like a sabotage style thing where the guys from Goldfinger were dressed up as security guards. Uh, you know, with fake mustaches and stuff. And so in some of the shots, they were like, you know, beating beating on uh, members from the Impossibles. 
we, we were so stoked. And then that video got shelved and never, never like really came out. I've seen it. I, you can find it, you know, somewhere, but uh, they ended up shooting like a, a separate live video for Mabel that ended up being like the official release. Wow. Wow. So in the, in the, uh, in the original video shoot, how, how, how visible are you guys? Like in the final cut that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd have to know what we look like and really be looking (laughs) to to get anything out of it. But you know, that's all we wanted was just some like uh, background actor style. There I am. It's me. Did you, um, did you get paid to be in the video? Oh no, 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 no. (laughs) There there was, there was no budget for, I mean, that's, you know, that was part of the whole deal of them putting out a bunch of flyers and and people to come down. But so from that, the the drive-through people knew who we were and then I like, they never extended an offer to us or anything, but I just, I know when we signed to feel by ramen, there was sort of like a, Oh, you know, we really wanted to sign you guys and, you know, wish you hadn't kind of already sealed the deal. But I mean, in retrospect, I couldn't be happier with the way that we ended up going. And then ultimately things soured between uh, at least me and the drive through people. <laughs> so I mean, you guys get into like ska drama on this podcast? Yeah, let's go. What happened? You got some skama? Okay. <laughs> skama. It's not a, it's not a great... Uh, it's not a, a, a super great story, but we just I ended up having a, a falling out with them kind of post impossibles after the breakup. Uh, and, and it, it went like really downhill where, uh, there were like competing blog posts and stuff. It was so early internet that no one remembers it really, which is, which is good for me, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, it just it just went really, really badly and, and may ultimately made it harder for us as a band because, you know, later on we would end up touring with Newfound Glory, who were a drive through act and just made everything super awkward. So what was your I mean, what were you even interacting with them for at that period? Were you trying to work with them? No, it was like mutual friends. I was hanging out in L.A. with Germ, actually, and we were house sitting Uh so at the time, you know, the Impossibles had a song called Fat Boy, right? Like like part mm-hmm. of my identity, particularly at that time, was, you know, I was a fat kid. And really, if I'm honest, at the time, also thought of myself as like really overweight. Like I'm the fat one, but I like was trying to do the like I'm owning it and it's this empowering thing sort of, sort of deal. And I made a joke that... Uh, was really like not a- trying to aim at anybody else. I was trying to like self-deprecate myself, but I like alluded to uh, 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 Stephanie from Drive Through in it in a way that was really tacky and tasteless. And I wish I'd never said it. It was really, you know, it was dumb. Uh, but that that was like that was it. I got I got a phone call the next day that was like basically like we're never talking to you again (laughs) wow and they they were like super tight with the hippos who were like my best friends in los angeles and yeah i mean that i i felt like my whole world had ended in that moment it was it was like super painful uh and i'm so glad y'all had me on so i can you know air this out and uh finally work through my feelings live on in defense of (laughs) scott i'm glad we can be here for that that's the last of that you've spoken with them basically. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean it. Yeah, it, things do not get better from from there. But I don't need to be the one that uh, completely unpacks drive-through records on on your podcast. I'll, I'll I'll hand off to the next person that wants to get into all the weirdness that went on with that label uh, after that. So, okay. You guys do this first record um, or it's re-released by uh, Fueled by Ramen. Uh, you hit the road, but you guys don't really last too much longer after that, right? Yeah. Uh, things were kind of on the rise. Uh, they were going really well. We were doing fantastic in Austin. Like we were selling out Liberty Lunch, which is, I, I still can't believe it. it's really wild. Uh, and things were going super, super well. And it just kind of came to this point where I think everybody was making that. Okay. This is post high school, but now we're starting to get into a place where either I'm going to go to college or I am not, you know, it it like became this sort of pivot point for, for folks in the band. And at the end of the day, they, you know, didn't want to keep kind of pushing in, in that direction for me. I, you know, higher education was just not on the roadmap. I was, I was, that was not going to be an option for me. So, um, I was looking to keep it going, but I, I had enough perspective to know that if I had like tried to, you know, replace them and keep things going, I, I, it would have just, I would have thought it was lame, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and so we, we just ended it and we ended on a high note, which is fantastic. You know, uh, our, our last show, we shot a concert film, uh, and released it through Fuel by Ramen uh, as a DVD that was pretty crazy. I, you can see it on YouTube today. Like, if you've never heard of The Impossibles, uh, try looking up uh, The Impossibles Never Say Goodbye on the Fuel by Ramen YouTube channel, and you can see that uh, there were some people who had heard of us. <laughs> so it was this a hometown show, I assume? Yeah, I was at Emo's. So Liberty Lunch had closed down at that point, and uh, Emo's kind of became our next home. Um, and I, I am so sorry. That is in 2002, and that's when we broke up the second time. Uh, the first time uh, that we broke up, uh, it was similar. It was also on a high note. Uh, but you are just going to have to forgive me for getting those two events that were four years apart completely confused in my head. So where did you play your final show um, the first time? Aaron, why are you pushing me on this, man? I I, I thought we were friends, but now you're calling me out for not being able to recall. I don't know. And and I know I can think of off the top of my head, three or four people who are screaming, listening to this. They're like, they know the date. They know the venue. They've got the ticket stub framed on their wall. And they're just like, I can't believe that you can't remember um but yeah yeah you had a lot going on at the time the first time though you played your last show did you know it was going to be your last show like with the emos one i feel like you guys knew yeah yeah and that's probably why it sticks more in my head it was more of like a okay we're gonna do this properly and like i said we we shot it you know we we filmed it um but yeah i i I think the i think the first time it was also at emos and we definitely knew that it was our last show and and kind of announced it as such but we didn't make sort of as big of a deal the in 2002 we did you know 
two shows and uh it was it was just much more of a uh, much more of an affair before you played your last show the first time you met a band called animal chin <laughs> sure your first show together was on tour in a pizza shop yes we played in Indianapolis, indiana uh we, we had the same booking agent um and ozark entertainment who also booked MU330. So that was... An, and Link 80. And Link 80. Okay, there you go. Yep. There you go. Uh, and briefly, Alkaline Trio. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so, you know, Steve Ozark was all about, I'll, I'll find you somewhere to play, right? Like, there's, there's, I've got a good show here and a good show there, and here's a relatively populated city in between that has a pizza shop that sometimes has bands playing a corner. So... <laughs> Let's let's make that your Thursday, right? Um, and so it was one of those shows where where we had met Animal Chin, and yeah, I mean it was just crazy. We uh, super impressed. They had so much more of a put together, we know what we're doing sort of vibe than, than the Impossibles did. Uh, you know, and, and to this day, I still kind of uh, uh, am in awe at Jamie and just sort of how he's able to master so many things he's like he's like a blend between a jack of all trades and, and a master he, he's like a, a master of all trades um but you know meeting animal chin at that point they you know we were bringing this sort of like heartfelt piece to it they were bringing this like aggression piece to it that was amazing and i was familiar with like other sort of aggressive ska bands you know there was like the blue meanies and 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 stuff that was definitely um definitely had a harder edge to it but they just they also brought this like propagandi you know just all these elements to it that were exactly the sort of punk that i was listening to at that time and so we we were just in in awe they had put out their ep with fuel by ramen um and so we just started kind of playing more and more and and they became you know as far as as touring bands go definitely like one of our our tighter relationships uh out there were you familiar with them before that show or was it like discovering them basically at that show it was mostly discovering them um again you know you were kind of limited to direct physical interaction with a thing to have the music of another person and at that point we had not you know found any way to have access to the ins and outs of terrorism which was their uh their first release um, at that show, we got it, and and that was you know, it, it was just it, it was mind blowing to to see a band be able to capture capture all of that energy, and then also you know have that that political fury behind it, uh, just doing it in a way that you know I know Scott has inherent politics to it, and, and there's lots of like different elements to it, but they were just doing it in a way that uh, we had never seen before and just seemed, you know, we were super impressed by. How was the actual show? Uh, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I was, I definitely had rose colored glasses on constantly during that time. You know, if, if we were playing for eight people, but those eight people were stoked, I was stoked too. And that was a hundred percent what that show was like. Like the, the little handful of, of kids who came out for that, they were psyched. And so therefore I was psyched. I remember like one of the, the main memories 
that I have of that that sort of uh, situation was playing like a rec center show with ME330 and there being like 12 people there and me just being like, you know, this is great. There's there's so much energy and it's such a good feel. And and Jerry was touring with ME330 at that point and he was just like depressed. He was so <laughs> over it. He was, and, and I was like, oh, you know, isn't this great? Like, like these kids are so psyched. And he was just like, man, I've played enough rec centers like in my time I'd, I'd really like to to start being able to to play real venues for real amounts of people <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. i get it you know like especially now in retrospect and knowing at the time i didn't even really realize the the history that he had with skank and pickle and you know uh yeah. how long he had been doing it at that point um but it was just so it was so interesting with me being so far from that uh, in that moment. I can imagine. Cause like, and, it's, and since you just read my book too, you probably remember what I wrote about the tour I did with them as a roadie mm-hmm. and how they were playing uh, sold out venues every night in the Midwest. And uh, I could, I could see going from that to doing these like kind of, you know, hit and miss shows Mm-hmm. that could be pretty tough to go back to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's completely understandable. Adam did, uh, did Steve ever book link 80 at a pizza place in Indianapolis? Not that I can think of. Um, <laughs> but what I wanted to ask Rory though, is, uh, how was the pizza? Do you remember? <laughs> and did they give you free pizza? Cause I feel like all you eat on tour is pizza. Yeah. I'd be shocked if we like, what, what if they had given us like filet mignon at the pizza place? It'd be like the, <laughs> the ultimate twist. Yeah. Plot twist. <laughs> um, when, okay. So let me just get your opinion on something really quick. Yeah. You're playing a show. They're, they're like, we've got pizza coming for you. Hot pizza. And the pizza shows up and it's 30 minutes before you're going to play. Uh-huh. What's your plan? <laughs> <laughs> What's your plan? <laughs> so I don't, I don't really think ahead. So I would just plow into the pizza. Okay. So you're just going to go for it and then just feel bad on stage. Or I would be like, you know what? I'm not going to eat that pizza because it, you know, it could mess with my vocal cords. I really should probably sure. stay away. It's going to mess up my stomach. I think through mm-hmm. all of that. And then two minutes later, I would find myself eating a slice of pizza <laughs> and just be like, I wasn't going to do this. I forgot. Yeah, because there's always there's the two camps. There's eat it so you're not hungry, but then feel terrible on stage. Right. Or there's not eat it, wait till after the set, but then it's all somebody else ate it all. Oh, for sure. If not your band, another band, or just some kids at the show. Or it's fused to the cardboard. Or it's fused to the cardboard. <laughs> so then you get extra fiber. Yeah. My move was because I'm just I'm animal. I would just take two pieces of pizza and just fold them so that it was crust side out. Uh-huh. So the cheese is touching yeah. and then just plow in oh, like sure. that. So that way I could get maximum amount of pizza into my body <laughs> at once so that I wouldn't starve to death. Good call. <laughs> at that time, 18, 19. Yeah. I would just eat as much as possible. Yeah. Just feel bad. I, right? Well, I don't even know that I would feel all that bad at that age. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. Now if I was on tour, no. Well, it's mostly just ju- like filling your pizza with dough and or filling your stomach with dough and cheese and then jumping up and down for half an hour. Like <laughs> yeah. that's the part that made me feel bad. Like it could 
It could be any food, really. And then just, hey, let's go do, let's go jump up and down with this in your stomach. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Um, I, have a, I have a question that I've always wondered about the Impossibles. Okay. Um, who plays trombone? Gabe. Gabe plays trombone. Yeah, Gabe, okay. Gabe played trombone. Um, in the early days, he would bring the trombone on stage and, and he would do it. So Gabe is like a virtuoso trombone player. Like he, he was, wow. uh, yeah, he was incredible. He, he would go and like do uh, uh, gigs, just him playing trombone solo. Can you, I mean, can you imagine that? Like, no. <laughs> just, but he would do it and it was, and it was incredible. Like he, he was such a, a fantastic trombone player. And so that really was the, the main reason that, any sort of horns made it on to that, that first impossibles record was just like, you know, we happen to have a fantastic trombone player. We should really take advantage of it and, and at least have him uh, play on a couple of songs. But, you know, for me as, as the songwriter for, for the band, I, I, I never really had that capacity in my head to hear that extra horn piece to it. And I'm glad we didn't really go down that road just because it, it probably would have been superfluous and just sort of like, you know, on top of it without really adding anything. The bands that really, you know, crush in that space, like ME three thirty is a good example where yeah. where the 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 horn lines really serve a purpose and are like this whole other melody component to it. Or like the blue meanies where it's just like technical and crazy mm-hmm. and and you know m- makes your brain melt. I think if we had tried to to keep it up with the horn thing, it probably would have just been, you know, unneeded extra toppings. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been the anchovies on the impossible's pizza uh, that, that wouldn't have been great. And, and by the way, I do have to make amends cause I, have you guys seen the ska movie? The, sorry, pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. So pick it up ska in the nineties. Uh, uh, very Taylor was super gracious to let me be a part of that. Super duper happy. Uh, it is funny though, like the, one of the like two or three times that I'm in that movie was basically to make a really snarky comment about trombone players and say that I was, <laughs> I was happy to have, have had, uh, uh, more space in the van to be able to put my feet down because we didn't have a horn section. So, you know, for anybody out there, if that rubbed you the wrong way, trombone players of the world, I, I apologize. This is, we're getting a lot off of our chest in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very therapeutic episode. For I, I love, I, no, I loved it because, because I think it like the way that he put it into the movie was perfect, and I, I don't mind, sort of being that that sort of snarky heel, uh, in the ska scene because because I think, you know, it's it's a much better place for me to try and occupy than to try and be like the scholar because, like I was saying in the beginning, the my my understanding of the history of ska was so bad so uh you know if i can make an, a, an occasional one-liner i'm i'm happy and it, it can can i get into something real quick i know i'm like sure 
This is like Let's go. Total therapy session. So, so reading through your book, Aaron. Okay. In Defense of Ska, available in fine bookstores now. I, it's the, the whole Ska shame part, like really spoke to me and kind of took me back, uh, you know, cause I, I remember being in that, that whole situation and, you know, as, as Ska became le- less cool and less sort of acceptable and everybody kind of was turning away from it we 100% kind of took that path. Like there's, there's some live shows you can see uh, during parts of the impossibles runs where we would play the songs with the ska parts done as kind of like pop punk guitar instead of ska guitar. Right. Like, like nothing says shame more than like, I'm, I'm actually, you know, tweaking my song to try and make it less of this thing. So, I mean, that, that was, it was a real thing and it was a real thing that, that I think we definitely felt. And I, I just, you know, for anybody that, that if that was ever their takeaway from the band that, you know, we were a band that uh, started off uh, being into ska and then eventually decided that, that we you know, hated ska and we're trying to distance ourselves from it. I just want any, anyone to know that I have, since then really, you know, had the opposite experience of, of kind of falling back into love with what originally made that, that music so fun and so cool. And so in in 2013, we did the first new impossibles music in, you know, 11 years or something like that. Uh, And we did a seven inch and I purposefully, one of those songs is, is like a ska impossible song. It's, it's like our old, our our older songs. It's because I I realized how dumb it was for us to have like discovered this thing, like this sound that no one else was doing. And then to try to make ourselves more like everyone else, which is, Mm. which is, doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) And so, so now in retrospect, I can see, how you know how important it was for us to be able to to find that in the beginning and then also how big a part of it was for making us special in any sort of way like if we had just been like a a pop punk band uh, i I don't think that it would have connected with as many people as it did yeah definitely yeah how was how was return received the album has no ska um it was relatively well received i mean i there are some diehards out there that they really really love it i can't listen to that record i think it it the the recording process of it was just bad and really painful and then the final product doesn't really sound very good it was it was right during the time when things were transitioning from analog into pro tools and digital recording and when we made that record, we did it very, very quickly. We got it, got it all together and kind of, you know, threw it down to tape and, and it just kind of shows. It's just not a very uh, good sounding record. It's got one of my favorite songs that we ever did on it. Uh, Never Say Goodbye uh, is, you know, in my opinion, one of the, one of the better songs that, that I wrote for The Impossibles. Um, but the sound of it is just horrible and I can't listen to it. But I, I would say it didn't, it didn't set the world on fire or anything but it was still during the period where you could sell cds it was like the tail end of that and i mean you know on the road we sold a ton of that record like it it absolutely was successful 
for us and, you know, by our measure of what success was at that time, for sure. How much of the lyrical content of that album is informed by uh, your departure from the stereo? Um, so there's a song called Hey You Kids. Yeah. <laughs> Adam with the loaded questions. Um, Sorry, man. No, no, it's great. Uh, where uh, the first the first few lines is, you know, hey, you kids, turn off the stereo, right? Um, or maybe that's like the second verse. Uh, and yeah, it was it was a hundred percent a barb at Jamie and at at the band the Stereo, which was the band that I had uh, been in between periods that the Impossibles were active. So after the Impossibles had broken up the first time, uh, me and Jamie, the front man for Animal Chin, uh, we were brought together by John Janik from Fuel by Ramen, and we made the band the Stereo. Uh, I was in that band for 10, 11 months before getting uh, kicked out uh, and then going back to the impossibles to do return. And so, yeah, so there, there's definitely some lyrical barbs in there uh, aimed at, at Jamie. Uh, the stereo had put out an EP called new Tokyo is calling that had a lot of lyrical content kind of about, you know, some of the same sort of, you know, me getting kicked out and stuff. So it was almost, I don't know if I was like romanticizing it in my head or something, but it seemed like there was sort of a, a conversation happening, you know, between our, our musical output at that point. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the stereo. You have a podcast about that tells the whole history and the whole story of the stereo. Yeah. Um, do you guys know anybody with a podcast? Cause I've got one. <laughs> We've heard of them before. They're, they're uh, <laughs> I, I, my understanding is every uh, every citizen of the United States now has a <laughs> podcast. I love y- y'all's podcast, by the way, um, and I'm very very happy to be on it right now. And yes, uh, similar to when I started making music, you know, I, I was just really inspired by the things that I was hearing and I was seeing what was being done, and I've always had that in me where it's like if I see something being done. And, and I think I can do it and I can contribute to it. Like I, I get really motivated and I want to do it. And so that happened for me with podcasts. Like I really podcasts became the main media that I was consuming for, for a while. And through doing that, I started thinking, well, what, you know, if I did this, what would it, what would it be? You know, what would it sound like? Um, and the story of the band, the stereo has always been really fascinating to me. So there was the the period of time that I was in the band. And even within that short period, there were like amazing things happening that, that were kind of unbelievable. But then after I got kicked out, there was all sorts of inner band drama and turmoil. And simultaneously, it seemed like things were really coming together for them and they were going to be the next big thing and they were going to break out. And it all just imploded. Like it all, just went nowhere. And I, and I never really understood why. So when it came time for me to make a podcast, the idea of telling the story of that band was just super compelling to me. And, and, and me and Jamie had already you know made up after, after years. And so I got him on board as well with the idea of, of telling, you know, the story of, of really his band, you know, he's the one constant in that story. Um, and so it's going to be a five part limited series podcast. Uh, it's out right now. It is called Kings of No Hope, the story of the stereo. Uh, you can follow it and uh, get a new episode every other week. 
go a little deeper into the formation of the band because sure doesn't it start with jamie basically trying to write his own album and sending it to field by robin ramen and he like plays all the instruments himself yeah so jamie you know was really capable in that capacity where he could go in he, he's an amazing drummer on top of everything else that he's amazing at. And so he could go into a studio by himself, play all of the instruments and come out with sounding something that sounds amazing. And that's what he did. He went in to a studio in Minneapolis and basically put together some demos that could have potentially been a solo record. Concurrently, I, in Austin, I had bought a digital four track. It was a mini disc four track. And I had started recording songs as well. And so we were both sending our songs to John Janik, the, the uh, leader of uh, Field by Ramen Records. And when John got our, our you know, respective demos, he just saw the through line. Like he instantly saw, oh, you know, these guys are going in, in sort of the same general direction. Why don't I try and get them together? And it was super savvy. And, and I think it worked out really well. We, we put our, our demos together. We redid all of them and then ended up making that stereo record in like record time. When I look at the timeline now of 1999, uh, it completely, uh, my mind is blown because basically I was only from the time that we started working together to the time I was kicked out was like January to November. And we put out the record by, by like the summer uh, of that year and then, and then started touring because uh, we were just so motivated and so looking to make something happen. So the recording of uh, 300, the mm -hmm. record we're talking about, which came out in 99, um, that was just the two of you guys recorded that, right? You guys got in a room and recorded it? Yeah. So again, Jamie's a fantastic drummer, so he was able to play the drums on it. Uh, you know, I played bass on some of his songs. Uh, we, we kind of varied things up and, and just shared all the responsibilities and yeah, did the whole thing. Just me, him, a ADAT recording setup, which is like VHS tape recording, uh, digital. Uh, and then it was one big basement room, uh, was all that we had to be able to make that record. And, and considering that those are the components that went into it, I think it sounds pretty fantastic i think one of the mm -hmm. the legacies of the stereo is that when we put that record out there was so much acclaim for how big it sounded and and you know professional quote unquote that it sounded uh, which is crazy when you know the circumstances it was created under which were very much not professional did you track it on vhs did i hear that right when yeah on the first <laughs> okay yeah so adat was uh it was made by a company called alesis and it was a way to be able to digitally record music onto regular size vhs tapes there was there were other companies making ones that would use like the the smaller sort of camcorder tapes uh and and so we went with the the adat um yeah, it was, and like the 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 mixing board had recall built into the ADAT sync as well, which was like mind blowing at the time. Like, oh my gosh, you can control the faders on this little mixing board and be able to you know do things with it. Uh, it was it was a very singular point in time. It's like there's only a few really important records that were made on that format. Alanis Morissette's "Jagged Little Pill" is one of them, uh, but <laughs> I would. 
So I would argue, you know, the Stereo 300, it's probably the number two most important record ever made on your dots. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. <laughs> Do you still have access to an ADAT machine? Oh, no. I had someone <laughs> I had someone that I work with give me an ADAT uh, like 10 years ago. Uh, and I just ended up not having space for it and just having to get rid of it. I, I think I gave it away uh, on Craigslist or something. The sound and the direction of the stereo. I'm curious about that a little bit. I mean, it's very different than what both of you guys were doing in your previous bands, but it also feels pretty, it feels very worked out. Like it didn't feel like that micro step away from what you were doing. It felt like a full, you know, a full step towards something completely different in a way that felt right. realized. So I'm curious about how that part of it came to be. Was it just naturally what you two were writing or did you talk about, you know, new influences? We didn't really talk through a lot. It, it really was just a situation where we're, we're like working in two different laboratories and trying to create something. And then when we finally compared notes, we just found out that the two things we were creating were virtually identical, you know, or just, or just very, very similar. I think at the time, things like super drag and even, um, that thing you do, the movie, that thing you do mm -hmm. with the, uh, soundtrack from, uh, the fountains of Wayne guy, that sort of just powerful pop rock music was really speaking to me. And I think, I think Jamie as well. And so I, I think that was, even though we didn't, plan it or talk through it a lot before we got started uh we just coincidentally had been you know really turned on by the same things i just put it together right now what 300 is oh it's perfect score in bowling <laughs> <laughs> yeah. took me all this time rory sorry just got it yeah like right now while we're listening to this i just got it yeah, I I made a turkey. I mean, Adam, I don't know if you know this. It's a true story. Yeah. That song. It's two in the morning. Yeah, it's exactly. So you pulled me out of bed so we could go bowling. Um, that song almost sounds like a ska song. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. It was never a ska. It was never a ska song, though. No, it wasn't. Um, no, I, I I wrote it while I was in the Impossibles. It's got that energy, though. Yeah, yeah, I can. I, I can hear that. And I, and for the record, I would love to hear a ska version of that song. All right. Yeah. Maybe if we can get Patrick Stump to do it. He's, Ooh, Patrick, you listen. He's got the skills. Love Ooh. Patrick. Patrick. So for the, for the stereo podcast that I do, I got to uh, interview Patrick uh, and he is amazing. He's an amazing artist. I, I, I love him to death. Uh, American beauty, American psycho. Uh, one of my like top rock records of all time <laughs> for anybody uh, who who hasn't heard it, please go check it out. I'm sure a lot of people have. Um, but Patrick was, was amazing to talk to. And uh, it was so heartbreaking for your interview to come out first after I'd been sitting on, <laughs> sitting on an interview with Patrick Stump from fallout boy, where he talked about being yeah. an obsessive ska kid sitting on that for about a year and a half because it took forever for us to get the stereo podcast done. And then in defense of Ska just swoops in. Swooped on. Yeah. Sorry about that, bud. <laughs> yeah. How, how much more ahead of us had you recorded your interview? Like, than we did? like literally a year and a half. Wow. Like I've been, we've been working on the stereo stuff forever. Cause we, 
we, you know, for one thing, it takes forever to do anything when it's your side hustle and sure. you know, you're coordinating people from across the country. And that's, that's what we're doing with the stereo at this point. Um, but then obviously, you know, the pandemic hitting kind of also put everything on pause. We're like, okay, what are we going to do about this? I'm, I'm not even sure. We eventually landed the whole thing on crowdfunding and started a Kickstarter for the stereo that has been absolutely incredible. Amazing. My head has exploded. I am now dead because I can't, I cannot <laughs> believe how amazing the response to the stereo Kickstarter has been. Yeah, what's it at right now? Last I looked at it, it was at nineteen thousand. Uh twenty-six something. Damn. It's how many days has it been up for? Since Wednesday or Tuesday <laughs> Tuesday. And it's Sunday wow. now. Yeah. That's incredible. When you guys released three hundred, was there any backlash at all about you guys not doing ska? Was there any fans that are like going, What is this? I have no doubt that there were actually Patrick Stump uh, mentioned to me in in the interview that, you know, when he initially heard about the stereo, that was what he was excited about was the idea that, uh, you know, two ska front men were going to come together and make a super band. And of course it's going to be ska. And then uh, Vinny, same story. So Vinny Fiorello from less than Jake, uh, uh, and he had never told this to me before when I, when I interviewed him about the stereo record. Uh, he said that when he first put it in, he was expecting something that was going to meld Animal Chan and the Impossibles into some sort of like ultra ska band. Um, but no, I, I, I don't remember a lot of people really saying anything like that to us, you know, directly. I'm sure that there might have been some chatter about it, but also it was already becoming very passe to be. And in a ska band, so I I think there was sort of like a an understanding amongst everybody that like oh yeah if I start another band right now it wouldn't be a ska band either because yeah. times are really tough for being in a ska band. Yeah, I can remember all the Link eighty guys being really excited about the stereo album. That's awesome. And all of us kind of feeling the same way, like like you know you're like chained to you know ska punk at that point even though you maybe your your listening habits and what you're into have expanded yeah but you still feel like you got to play things a certain way and i can remember a lot of bands i remember seeing the siren six once and they had taken they had taken all the ska out of their songs yeah and they also were down to five members Mm -hmm. and (laughs) so there was one lonely saxophone yeah and uh, and he can't kick john out john's like the svengali of siren six Right. Right. Poor guy has to just keep, keep honking on his horn. Yeah. It's, you know, in a five piece band with six in the name. Yeah. It, it was a dark time. And, and you know what, more than anything in the world, I wish that Jeff Rosenstock had been a thing back then. And mm. like Jeff, mm-hmm. Jeff had just like slapped all of us across the face and been like, are, are, are you stupid? Like, like this, this is amazing. Like this, this music is amazing. The the kids who love it are amazing. You should be proud to be playing this music. And the fact that you're in, that you aren't proud is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I wish that Jeff had, uh, you know, said that to me um, when the stereo played with uh, his band in, in Long Island at a uh, Edna's Goldfish music video uh, shoot <laughs> back back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, Brian told us about that shoot. So you were in the band at that point during the shoot. I was. Yeah. And, and so it was like, they, 
they had the whole high school, like they had some hookup through someone in Agnes Goldfish's camp. Uh, they had the whole high school to be able to both shoot the video and then also have a show in like the cafeteria. And so the stereo played in the cafeteria and like the power went out, you know, just total the way that things always went for the stereo, which was, you know, something tragic happened and everything went wrong. Uh, uh, definitely happened within that show as well. But Jeff, let me know. So I, I interviewed Jeff for the the stereo podcast. Uh, and that's when I found out that, that his band had played the sort of like second stage down the hall because they were, you know, part of the, the long Island ska scene, which mm. uh, Edna's yeah. goldfish were obviously a big part of. If I go back and rewatch the, the video, are you in it, like in the final cut? I don't. I don't think so. I think other guys from the stereo are, but I don't believe I am. Okay. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody! It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA plus, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So in your podcast, you open up by kind of talking about the legacy of the stereo, um, the influence you've had. You know, you Mm -hmm. talk about Fallout Boy dashboard confessional newfound glory you also talk about um this writer from alt press uh you know like 10 years after the fact Mm -hmm. um wrote that it was one of you know one of the top most influential records of 1999 Mm -hmm. so how would you quantify the influence it had in terms of what you guys were doing and what it sort of influenced and what it what it predated i guess you could say yeah, 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 yeah. And and basically like the first episode of the podcast in part is a why should you even care sort of setup, right? Yeah. So so if you've never heard of the stereo uh and 99.999% of people have not, um you know, is there any reason to to care about this story? And so part of what we bring to that is folks from other bands who talk about the influence who are, you know, infinitely more successful and so you know patrick stump talking about singing along to the stereo records and how that helped him find his voice or chris caraba talking about listening to the stereo every time before he goes out on stage you know and just the sort of um way that the stereo behind the scenes kind of got in and and helped be able to to influence things uh scott heisel from alternative press was the one who uh, wanted to include us on that, uh, you know, 10 most influential records of, of 1999. And I think from his perspective, a lot of what came after from Fuel by Ramen, you know, uh, uh, Paramore, Panic at the Disco, uh, Fall Out Boy, uh, a lot of the stuff that was successful after that had its roots in some of what, what we had done. And, and that might be, you know, more direct in sort of an influence like, you know, uh, uh, the way that Jamie sang on uh, on uh, Patrick finding his voice, um, or less direct, just in the way that we had made an indie record that had big kind of slick production, and how it was 
one of the first records to kind of come out and just do that unapologetically, uh, uh, you know, without the sort of like fear of repercussion of the sellout tag, which is, you know, the dreaded sellout tag of the late nineties. We just kind of came out and said, we don't care this, you know, hopefully this, this record does well, but uh, it sounds as good as we can possibly make it. And I think that helped, sort of inspire other bands that were a part of that same scene to be able to kind of push themselves in that direction. I see. Yeah. So a lot of these bands that we were talked about, they kind of blew up in the more like in the mid two thousands, maybe a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like the stereo, you know, I left the band in 99, they kept going uh, until like 2004. And then, you know, it's, it's practically like smash cut to gold records going up all over the walls. Uh, you know, (laughs) like amazing Mm -hmm. success for the label and all the bands on it. And, you know, in a way I think it sort of felt too, like the band had just sort of missed the, the timeframe of, uh, of all of that success and stuff. It's like one more example of the stereo can't win like this, this band just cannot, uh, seem to to get off the uh, off the runway. Yeah, you mentioned it earlier, and I was going to say something that um, I don't recall you saying in the podcast that Fountains of Wayne were an influence. But when you mentioned it now, uh, that's exactly what I thought of when I've listened to them. That it seemed, or you guys, that it seems like Fountains of Wayne was a prominent influence. They, I mean, they were just in the sense that they were there was a ubiquity to what they were doing, and like I said, like that. Th- so I. I never owned a Fountains of Wayne record, which may sound like sacrilege. I know they have some really intense uh, fans uh, and, and and we definitely do owe influence to them. But again, you know, for me, I just watched that thing you do over and over and over again. <laughs> and that, that was where I absorbed that influence from. So you were kicked out of um, the stereo twice. Is this correct? <laughs> yes. I, I was kicked out and I still, I don't think Jamie to this day, even after us having the interview, I, I still don't think he really remembers it, but yeah, there was, there was definitely a initial sort of conversation where the direction that where it was trying to head was, I don't, you know, I don't want to do this as, as a two person band anymore. I want to do this as a one person band. Uh, and then I, uh, I got really dramatic. I got really drunk. Uh, I had a really bad night. It was really gross and I cried a whole lot. Uh, and then the next day, I guess Jamie just felt so bad. He like walked it back and like, let me stay in the band. Um, but you know, from that initial fracture, it was all, I was always sort of felt like I was on the edge from there on until I actually you know, really got kicked out of the band in the sort of like final moments of it. There was never a, a feeling of stability once I knew that, that, you know, Jamie was basically okay with the idea of moving forward without me. How how much time between your first getting kicked out and your second getting kicked out? I think it was probably like six months. It was, it was before the record ever came out was the first time that we had the conversation and then it was after months of touring on the first record that, you know, I eventually got the final boot. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out the timeline earlier, but between uh, what I heard on the on the pop stereo podcast, uh, it happened 
the actual kicking out happened in Austin. Yes. Right. But we, we had played with you in, in Houston. Right. At, at Fitzgerald's and we were all, it was our first time getting to see the stereo and we were all excited about it. We had the album and, and Jamie, the first thing out of Jamie's mouth when you ran up to us is just Rory's driving me crazy. <laughs> and we were just like, Whoa, like what? Okay. Yeah. And then we watched you guys play the set and it was great. Yeah. And, and then you just went and hit out in the van yeah. for the most, the rest of the night. And I think some of the guys who'd been in the band when the impossibles and link 80 had toured together in 97, like, we're like, well, we need to go say bye to Rory before we leave. Yeah. So we like stopped by the van. I feel bad, you know, now kind of hearing that back. It was just such a dark time for the band. Sure. And, and you know, me and Jamie, uh, uh, to this day, I think we're very different people. It's just now we've sort of figured out the way to enjoy each other's differences as opposed to grate them up against each other uh, and, and hate each other for them. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a bad time. And and that's sad too. Cause you know, the link 80 guys, I, I hadn't seen any of those guys since, uh, Mullis across America was the 97 tour with the hippos and homegrown and link 80. Um, so yeah, I feel bad that, 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 you know, bad blood sort of rubbed off on them. Hmm. Well, so what were you doing to drive Jamie crazy? my my sort of characterization of it is that so i was like a huge at the drive-in fan right uh at the drive-in were huge in texas and hadn't really broken big elsewhere but they were sort of like you know the the band that i had seen and and felt like oh i've seen the light this is the future of music you know this is where it's all going and they had this element to the shows of just going so wild and and but still you know uh, uh keeping the energy up and so i wanted that too so so i got really into the idea of kind of going wild on stage uh playing in the stereo but the stereo is a very precise kind of band and and especially with the way that jamie really wanted the music to be there was a need for precision and so between that and then me not i'm i'm not a super talented vocalist like i i when i think about things that i'm talented at i think i'm a pretty good songwriter um but the singing that i do is more to be able to play the songs that i write uh than it is to to you know be able to uh have the the pleasure of uh singing for people and so with the stereo you know I'm kind of barely getting by in that respect as a vocalist, which is like a, a pretty key part of the band. And then for the like guitar part of it, I'm sort of freaking out and, you know, being sloppy comparatively to everybody else in the band. So it just, it, I think that created a lot of tension and, and it, you know, it just had this sort of like um, odd couple, dynamic where like Jamie is very buttoned down and again, like precise and straight edge and uh, no offense, Adam. And uh, <laughs> just like, like really intense. <laughs> right. And and not like I, like I was practically straight edge as well. Like I, I was not like some big party animal or anything like that, but it's just like, he's so much in that direction. And then I was really on the opposite end of things that I think it just, it just really, you know, ended up with us grading against each other. 
I've gotten in trouble for the same sort of thing, like throwing my guitar around. Yeah. Totally because of at the drive-in. Yeah. <laughs> like just being like, oh man, I want to while out like that too. Yeah. And the rest of the band's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like at the drive-in, their music sounds like chaos. So it's totally. Right. right. So if you're doing it in a band like the stereo, it, I could see it being yeah. a little off-putting. Yeah. It's a weird fit. Right. But I was also trying to keep an element of the stereo dangerous, you know, like we were already so, you know, playing such poppy rock that it, I wanted to have some grounding and sort of like the the punk background and stuff. And and so for me, that was the like freaking out and being sloppy stuff for Jamie. It was the descendants and yeah. precision. And, you know, like there's a version of punk rock that is also just got that element to it. Um, and so we just, you know, we were in those two different camps. The last thing I want to talk about, we're going to take a, we're going to take a sharp left turn. Okay. I want to talk about your, um, relationship collaboration with Barry Johnson of Joyce Manor. Sure. Love Barry. Yeah. Barry's great. So tell us a little bit of how that started. I mean, it's mind blowing to me. So, so Barry Johnson from Joyce Manor is, in my opinion, one of the, most talented songwriters working today. I yeah. Uh, full stop. Uh I was not familiar with Joyce Manor and uh I I got tweeted at in the Impossibles account from Joyce Manor and it was like, "Hey, we should do a tour." And I was like, "Oh, you know, that's funny. Some some band, you know, tweeted at us, you know, great. You know, high five." And then and then it got like you know, a hundred likes or something like some, some amount where I was just like, wait a minute, like what's going on? Like, and then I looked at, at, you know, their actual, uh, looked at Joyce Manor as like, Oh, you know, a lot of people are into this band, you know, maybe I should actually get off the couch and see what this is about. And I listened to it and I listened to never hung over again. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is like the, the best new band I've heard in a decade. This is incredible. So I, you know, eventually responded uh, to Barry and I was just like, yes, you know, or, or, you know, thank you so much. Like, you know, the Impossibles aren't a band anymore, but I, I have to let you know, like your music is incredible and I love it. And he, you know, reciprocated and talked about how influential the Impossibles were. And so it's just a, you know, great feeling, great love fest. Didn't really ex- expect it to go anywhere from there. And then you know, like six months or maybe a year later, he reaches back out and he's like, Hey, I'm working on new music. Would you, would you want to produce our new record? I have a day job that in no way would give me enough time to, to, you know, produce someone else's record in particular needing to like, you know, go to California or whatever. And I, you know, I don't know how serious he was about it anyway, but either way I was like, you know, I can't, I can't produce a whole record, but I would love to work on music with you. You are a fantastic songwriter. Let's do something. So he sent me like a voice memo recording of a song called Silly Games. Uh, and it was it was fantastic. Just like everything else that, that he does. You know, one thing I love about his songwriting is how, how short the songs are. Their whole albums are like, you know, 23 minutes long or whatever. Uh, it's nothing but the good parts and the good parts are amazing. And, and so this was no exception. Uh, but it had a little bit of a different feel to it. It had a little bit more of like almost sort of a Beach Boysy uh vibe for me and so i took it i i loaded it into logic on my computer and and i laid it out and i added 
additional instrumentation and I, I like moved some stuff around and played some stuff on it, sent it back to him and, and he loved it. And, you know, that, that song ended up on the next Joyce Manor record that they put out. And, and so we just, we collaborated like that on, on, you know, a handful of more songs uh, to this day, every once in a while, he'll reach out and he'll just be like, Hey, you want to work together on something? And then throw me uh, the tracks for, you know, maybe the vocals and the guitars and then I'll uh, work on it. And, and sometimes he, he takes it and, and uses parts that I did. And other times, you know, I hear on the record, a completely different version of the song that is also awesome, but it's the best, you know, sort of creative collaboration that I've been able to have in that sort of producery capacity uh, uh, ever, really. Because for a while I was producing records um, and I've done some records that I really, really love, like the Recover stuff instantly comes to mind for me. But um, I was also trying to do it as as a day job and that got kind of soul-sucking after a while, like producing music that you're not, you know, your heart maybe isn't into 100% making those songs with Barry and getting to collaborate with him. I mean, it completely refilled that cup for me. Like it, it completely reminded me of how I can work with someone else who is a really talented songwriter and be able to bring something to the table that, you know, can potentially elevate it. Uh, what songs that you have worked on with him have that have been officially released? Uh, you want like a list? <laughs> yeah. Is, is there, is, I know wildflowers. <laughs> Oh yeah, Wildflowers is is another one, um, and that was like a, a last minute addition to the to the record. Yeah, is it been a significant amount or just a handful that have been actually released? Yeah, uh, the song "Fighting Kangaroo" was one that we worked on together. Where I I think there's some elements of the version we did uh, uh, made it into the the final recording. It, it's kind of it's a little hard to remember, but it, it, you know it's it it is like a handful. I'm definitely not like the uh, you wouldn't see my fingerprints on every single song on a Joyce Manor record, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I get in there and make my mark on a, on a couple of key moments and it makes me super happy uh, to be involved with a band that I love so much. Yeah. That's awesome. I like, um, like if you listen, what this, the, the record that wildflowers is on, um, sorry, million dollars to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. That's from 2018. Um, I like that the song sounds different but still within, you know, it still fits enough. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the songs that we initially started working on were like a real left turn from Joyce Manor stuff, just because we didn't really know what was going to happen with it. And like, you know, should we intentionally be trying to do something really different so that it can be distinct from Joyce Manor? But, um, you know, at the end of the day, the songs were so good because they're, they're coming from Barry that, uh, they really needed to be on the like an official Joyce Manor release. And Barry, by the way, I will just to plug one more time. Barry is a huge proponent of the Stereo Podcast, uh, and uh, yeah. has been has been a gigantic supporter of it. Uh, so you know, it, it it has his seal of approval. He mentioned it on on this show, yeah, uh, which was uh, which was amazing and unexpected because. Uh, we were so far away from actually putting it out. <laughs> I know when he mentioned it at the time, I didn't realize this was a thing that wasn't yet released. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. You know? And then I didn't see where it was. And then, and then when we interviewed Jamie, that's where he mentioned it. And then I 
that's where it became clear to me that it was a thing in progress. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, In like 2007 or maybe 2006, uh, I I went to a Yola Tango show. Okay. At Emo's. Okay. And I was waiting for the band to go on. And I looked over and I saw Gabe. Yes. From The Impossibles. I've never met Gabe. Yep. But I saw him there. And I... I wanted to go over and tell him how much I like the impossibles, but I wasn't sure how it would have been received. <laughs> how do you think it would have been received oh, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. in front of his friends at a, at a Yola Tango show? <laughs> oh, wow. In 2006 or seven. Yeah. 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 Um, I think Gabe would have been incredibly gracious. He's, I, I've never seen him be anything, but uh, yeah, I, I, he, I think he would have been, he would have been thrilled. I should have gone for it. You you absolutely should have gone for it. Yeah, you're you're like, oh, this is Yoli Tango. He's probably trying to pretend to be cool, but uh I think Gabe, much like myself, we both know that we are not cool. Uh and, <laughs> and are ha- happy to uh happy to make that apparent. You you weren't at that show where you were I was not see, I'm not cool enough to even be at a Yolo Tango <laughs> show. So you didn't miss anything. It was terrible. Oh no! Well, Gabe, Gabe was a huge, <laughs> huge fan. So I was too until I went to that show. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already. Grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, 
How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.